This is a podcast from meow.net. M-I-A-A-W dot net. Meow! Welcome to Genuine Inquiry, a monthly series of audio essays, each of which interrogates a topic close to our hearts. Hello and welcome to Genuine Inquiry. My name's Owen Kelly. Last month, the philosopher Nick Bostrom wrote an apology. The Daily Beast website describes it as follows. One of the world's most celebrated philosophers has apologised for writing a racist email in which he used an appalling racial slur and said he believed it was true that blacks are more stupid than whites. Oxford University professor Nick Bostrom the Swedish philosopher famed for his argument that we might be living in a simulation and for popularizing the field of existential risk, shared the offensive message in an apology posted to his website. In the document dated January the 9th, Bostrom wrote that he had caught wind that somebody has been digging through the archives of an old listserv mailing list called the Extropians and that he wanted to get ahead, in his words, of someone surfacing the most offensive stuff which could be used in smear campaigns. The Extropians mailing list, he wrote, was a forum in the mid-90s where people had conversations about science fiction, future technologies, society and all sorts of random things. It was not moderated, so the noise level was very high. Occasional interesting ideas appeared, but also large quantities of silly, mistaken or outright offensive stuff. In his written apology, Bostrom went on to say, I completely repudiate this disgusting email from 26 years ago. It does not accurately represent my views, then or now. The invocation of a racial slur was repulsive. I immediately apologised for writing it at the time, within 24 hours, and I apologise again unreservedly today. I recoil when I read it and reject it utterly. Now, depending on what Nick Bostrom expected, this either had the effect he wanted or had the completely opposite effect. Certainly, a lot of people wrote a lot of articles arguing that he'd written a fake apology for which he should be pilloried. Now this set me wondering a number of things. Firstly, it set me wondering why Nick Bostrom had done that, to which we'll refer later. But it also set me wondering about the nature of apologies in the world today. This was triggered in part by a second event that happened uh, earlier in this week. The fact that the pop singer Harry Styles did not issue an apology. Let me explain about this in case it's escaped you. At the Grammy Awards last week, Harry Styles won an award for Best Album of the Year. And according to NBC, Harry Styles' acceptance speech after he won the Grammy Award for Album of the Year caused an uproar on social media on Sunday night. This had escaped me at the time, unsurprisingly perhaps, but um, initially I thought he must have made some very ill-advised speech in which he'd done something like attacking people who didn't deserve to be attacked or some such. However, when I went and looked, I found what he actually said was this. 
he got up to make the speech, to, uh, sorry, he got up to accept the award and he said, I think on nights like tonight, it's important for us to remember there's no such thing as best in music. I don't think any of us sit in the studio making decisions on what's going to get us one of these awards. This doesn't happen to people like me very often, and this is so, so nice. Thank you very much. The outrage hinged entirely on his penultimate sentence. This doesn't happen to people like me very often, and this is so, so nice. What did he mean by that? Someone on Twitter posted, This doesn't happen to people like me is the most white privilegist thing to ever have been uttered at an award show ever for all time. Okay, so what did Harry Styles mean? Well, one possibility is that the Twitter poster was right. His seriously considered position is that young, handsome, rich white men in their 20s very rarely win awards. However, there's no suggestion that he's ever thought anything like this at all. And I think it would be a remarkably odd thing to assume that he would think. A second possibility. Harry Styles considers himself as a small band of, as, as part of a small band of people from provincial northern England who've successfully left boy bands to start solo careers. A small group that might include Gary Barlow and Robbie Williams. In that case, Harry Styles is factually correct. People like that do not win Grammys very often, if at all. Another much more likely possibility. Harry Styles wasn't expecting to win the award. Everyone was expecting Beyonce to win the award. He had nothing planned to say. He walked on stage in a state of surprise. He looked round at the hall, full of people like Jay-Z and, and Beyonce, etc., suffered momentary or maybe perpetual imposter syndrome, looking around at the company he was in, and said something that reflected his momentary discomfort at winning what most of the world apparently thought Beyonce would and should win. In which case, it was merely slightly unfortunate that the words that came out of his mouth intended to express humility. What's a poor working class lad like me from north of England doing here? Came across to some people who were happily looking for outrage as a racist remark by implication that indicated a casual level of white privilege. Now, I mention this because the internet whoever they are, demanded an apology. And either Harry Styles or his publicists wisely decided to keep quiet. So what does this tell us about the nature of apology in the internet age? On the Psychology Today website, Harriet Lerner has an article titled The Nine Rules for True Apologies, in which she explains how to distinguish between a genuine apology and a performative apology. And this article contains some useful information, or at least some information that's usefully compiled into, into a handy list. She argues that a true apology should never contain the word but, as in, I'm sorry, but. But, she argues, automatically cancels out an apology and nearly always introduces a criticism, an excuse or a justification. 
She also points out that a true apology keeps the focus on your actions, that is the actions of you, the person apologising, and not on the other person's response or the unintended consequences. For example, I'm sorry that you felt hurt by what I said last night is not an apology. It implies that your response is the issue or the heart of the issue, not what I said. Now, I think we will all recognise these and, in fact, the other uh, seven rules for true apologies that Harriet Lerner delineates. And I think we recognise them when they appear in the media, when, for example, powerful or formerly powerful people like Harvey Weinstein say that they're sorry for any hurt that their behaviour may have caused, when they're in fact referring to a history of brutal assaults carried out with impunity because the system they were a part of allowed them to act with impunity. These kind of apologies also offer special pleading along the lines of But you must remember this happened a long time ago and everything was different in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s or whenever it's convenient to cite it. I think we all recognise these, as I say, but I want to add just one more dimension to this. And this relates to Mark Zuckerberg's claim in 2010 that people have gotten really comfortable not only sharing more information and different kinds, but more openly and with more people. That social norm is just something that's evolved over time. This argument of Zuckerberg's was part of a trend. Arguably, this began in 1999, when Scott McNeely, the chief executive of Sun Microsystems, said, you have zero privacy anyway, get over it. And in 2009, Google chief executive Eric Schmidt stated in an interview, if you have something that you don't want anyone to know, maybe you shouldn't be doing it in the first place. Now these remarks all sidestep something in exactly the same way that a fake apology sidesteps. They all claim that something has evolved when in fact they are the people who have been pushing as hard as possible and as fast as possible to make this thing evolve as part of expanding their own business models. In a world in which brands pretend to act like people and people are encouraged to develop their personal brand, the lines between public and private have been blurred deliberately. And every utterance is now treated as though it's a carefully scripted and rehearsed view. An example of this. A couple of weeks ago, some indie band whose name I can't remember cancelled their tour because their singer had had one or more secret relationships behind his wife's back and needed to enter therapy to work through his issues. Last week, Maroon 5, another band, found themselves embroiled in a broadly similar scandal. Now I raise these because the issues involved in both of these cases ought to have been private. And the need to explain them in public, or the felt need to explain them in public, actually serves to damage the other people involved. The apology, the public apology, the unnecessary public apology, becomes entirely individualistic and self-serving and actually creates positive damage rather than healing anything. If this 
indie band's singer, whose name I can't remember, has indeed been having sexual relationships behind his wife's back. It doesn't benefit either the women who he tricked or his wife and children to have this placed in the public arena. The only person it benefits is him, because he, in the statement, becomes a kind of victim who needs to enter therapy to work through his issues, after which he'll become a better person, can rejoin the band, and the band will continue. What happens to the collateral damage is just what happens to the collateral damage in that kind of situation. The collapse of privacy in the rush to gather data and turn it into cash has created a whole arena of such performative activity to the benefit of almost nobody except those harvesting the clicks that result or those whose personal brands have been developed and extended as a result of these performative apologies. So where does this leave Nick Bostrom? In my personal view, it leaves him being too clever by half. The preemptive apology is not a genre we need to encourage. It reeks of acting like a brand, of careful planning, of damage limitation, when any apology worth anything needs to be heartfelt and needs to be relevant to the person being apologised to. The issue that Nick Bostrom raises is that he was attempting to apologise to the whole world about something that the whole world neither knew nor cared about. So the only person it was relevant to at that particular moment in time was him. He was worried that somebody might try and smear him at some point in the future by correctly pointing out that he had said something which he had said. And he was trying to get his retaliation in first. Now, of course, if you've never heard of Nick Bostrom, or you've never heard of long-termism, the philosophical strand he's claimed to be the father of, then his faux apology might send you looking to find out more about him. Which, from my perspective, is a neat bit of brand managing, but a very poor excuse for an apology. Thank you for listening. Now that you've heard the podcast, please go to the website. There you'll find much more details about topics talked about, links to references, and much more. You can find the website at meow.net. That's M-I-A-A-W dot net. See you there.